All right. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. <coughs> but I don't like being patient. I think I've learned that lesson, and I'm learning to be more patient um, over the last two and a half years than probably about any other time in my life. Um, mainly the last like year and a half, as my, my baby became a toddler um, about six, no, a year and a half ago, and has been able to vocalize her independence to greater and greater degrees. And um, they seem to have this, like, belief that, though they have not seen it, I am just one meal away from sitting down and consuming an entire meal while they watch with object horror as they get nothing to eat. And I, I just don't understand that, that belief system that they have. There's nothing to base it on. But that seems to be their their belief system about how meals operate at our house. And so as soon as we sit down and I start cutting up all the little food on their trays, they're yelling at me. And I'm like, you need to be patient. And I need to be patient too, because like, I don't understand what's going on. Because I like never eat before you guys are eating, and yet I'm hungry too, okay? And that's a, you know, a very simple illustration of you know, the importance of developing patience and the difficulty of patience in trying circumstances, uh, just dealing with a two-and-a-half-year-old, right? And, you know, a two-and-a-half-year-old screaming at you because they're not getting their way and you're constantly disciplining them throughout the day is, is difficult, but there are a lot more difficult situations that could happen in your life, such as persecution. And as we look at the situation that... The world continues to progressively go towards. It appears it's more and more likely that you and I will face uh, persecution of growing measures in our lifetime. And as James writes to this scattered church, these people are not foreign to the concept of persecution. These people that James is writing are people who have scattered from their home. Why? Because great persecution has come. So much so that they decided Jerusalem is no longer a safe place for us to stay. We are moving to the various far corners of the world there. And so James is writing to his beloved former church members and he's telling them, Hey guys, this is how you live by faith. This is how you follow through in a faithful way amidst the challenges, challenges and the trials that you are currently facing. And so it, it, it comes as no shock that as he wraps up this letter, he once again comes to this primary theme that we've seen him repeat over and over again, the importance of living by faith. Specifically here, though, he's going to address us and challenge you and I to wait in faith, or to be patient as we wait upon the Lord to do what we know he will do. This morning we've sung a number of songs that have talked about the fact that we, we know God's plan, that we can trust in God's plan, that God's plan will provide us with what he wants to provide us in his time. We've talked about the fact that 
The forces of evil are raging against the forces of good. And yet, who will conquer? In the end, God is the one who is the victor in all the situations that we face. And those are the same types of truths that James is going to use to challenge and encourage his scattered former church members. And so the, the big idea, I believe, is to wait patiently for God's just punishments of the evil. If you would take your Bibles and let's read James chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of, the Se of Sebaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. If you'll notice, there are no commands that appear to be commands for you and I in verses 1 through 6. He's simply addressing the evil, rich class that are abusing believers in those verses. And he's pointing us to the fact that there's hope. Why? Because God will judge. Verse 7, though, gets very practical for you and I. It begins to give you and I steps that we can take today as we consider the trials that we may face tomorrow. Therefore, be patient, brethren. Wait until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain? You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Father, we do thank you for the hope that you provide us in this text, reminding us that you are a good, just God, that you do judge evil, but you don't simply provide us with that, telling us there is, there's hope. You also provide us with instruction as to how we can build our confidence in you, and wait patiently for the day where you reveal your just judgments. And we see that all the wrongs of this world are made right under your powerful hand. Pray that you would equip us through this passage. Help us to be more patient individuals under the trials that you put us to for your honor and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Selfishness generates God's judgment. I think that's really the idea here. And as you and I read through this passage, if we see ourselves 
in this passage is people who are committed to a pursuit of our own desires, a, a pursuit of our own wealth or accomplishing our own success through our own means. And it's something that you and I need to seriously consider and say, is this describing me? Is this who I am? Is my life characterized by this pursuit of worldly pleasures? And if so, you and I ought to run from it as fast as we can. But the text over and over again uses language that makes it seem very apparent to me that he's not addressing primarily believers in verses 1 through 6. It's interesting, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. But as he continues to develop that idea, he's very clearly causing them to ask questions of themselves, to consider their lives. And as they consider their lives, to make decisions about their lives that will lead to transformation about their view of who God is and how they order their lives. But as you look at Genesis or, uh, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, instead the idea is these people are under God's judgment. James' common pattern of using questions to cause people to consider their actions, and then as they consider their actions via thinking through their, their actions with questions, that's all gone. He's not asking them to do that. Instead, it's just repeated over and over again, God will judge. And then as we move into verse 7, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, he's really now talking directly to me and how I relate to the persecution and the trials and the difficulties that are described in verses 1 through 6. And so a self-centered pursuit of pleasure does not satisfy it. And you see that in verse 1. All of a sudden, he's, he's calling upon them to come. And what are they supposed to come for? They're supposed to come and weep and howl. This is language that's very, very similar and seems to pull off of the language of the prophets. What he's getting ready to tell them is, the information that you're going to get here is very much like some of the information from the prophets. And when he tells them in the prophets to weep and howl, why? It's not because there's an opportunity for them to, you know, change and do better. It's like judgment is coming. Weep and howl. And so it seems like he's hearkening back to those same types of ideas. And what he's getting at then is, you have accumulated all these riches. You have all this stuff, but in light of what your future has for you, this does not satisfy. The only thing that is left for you is not to go and enjoy that beautiful yacht. It's not to go and enjoy that beautiful cabin you have back in the woods, or that lake that you have. Those are not bad things. But he says, in light of your future judgment by God, none of that matters. The only thing that makes sense is to weep and howl. Why? He tells them. Because of your miseries that are coming upon you. He then goes on and he describes their riches. And the summary is that your riches are all gone. 
And what he's picturing is, he's picturing an angry God who is going to judge. He's going to deal with these people who have acted so evilly and against and contrary to his plan. And so he describes how he's going to deal with these people. And it seems to me that it's going to take three different stages. And the first one, I believe, comes in verse 2. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Look at the first couple of verses. What are they describing? They're describing unparalleled destruction, like just that they're going... That's, that's horrible. Their riches are corrupted. Their garments are moth-eaten. Gold and silver are corroded. That's not something that easily happens, right? Most of you have, you know, somebody in your family who you could look to and go, you know, they've been married for 30, 40, 50 years, and if they haven't lost their ring, their ring may be a little tarnished, but it's not like overnight they accumulate this ring and then the next morning they wake up and their gold wedding band is all of a sudden tarnished and they're like, what happened to it, right? Slowly it begins to fade and it's not as beautiful unless they're like regularly getting it polished up and cleaned up and you know going and visiting the jewelers a lot, right? But the idea is this is something that typically lasts and all of a sudden the judgment is your wealth is nothing. That's the first step. But it doesn't stop there. Because he goes on in verse 3 and he says, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Their wealth is going to testify about their evil practices. And he begins to continue, he continues to develop that idea. He doesn't just simply say that your, their corrosion will be a witness against you. He specifically tells us how that's going to take place. These people have been very evil in accumulating wealth. And so the wealth itself is going to testify about their evil practices. Look at verse 4. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out from the Lord of Sabaoth, and have reached the ears of the Lord of Sebaoth. What's he saying? He's saying God has heard. These riches that they've accumulated that are now all vanishing and corroding and being ruined by moth, by corrosion, those same riches are going to be part of the testifying to their evil deeds. He says, you have hired people and you failed to pay them what they justly could have received. He goes on, though, and he says, ultimately, their death is going to be the final demonstration of their judgment. It's not going to be just that they lose their wealth. That would be bad enough. It's pretty bad when your, your wealth that you've acquired somehow is used as evidence against you in the court of law. And it's like, yeah, this, this very wealth, you know, this, this coin actually belongs to that poor person over there. It has a special... A special stamp on it that demonstrates that this specific one should have been paid to Joe and you kept it and it's now in your coffers and look at all the corrosion on this thing but he doesn't stop there he says you're actually preparing yourself for slaughter their death is going to be their final 
demonstration of their judgment. And so James continues on, and all this is pointing to the fact that God has a plan. And as these believers are facing persecution, they're facing people who are, who are being evil to them, in similar ways, probably some of them not facing the extent that is described here, some of them may be facing worse persecution that's been described here. He says God is going to judge those who are evil. And so take heart. Take heart. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. They fatten themselves for slaughter. They thought that they were accumulating all this stuff so that in their later years they could truly enjoy all the bounty they had stored up. And James says, no, that's not the case. Actually, what you've done is you've fattened yourself like a fattened calf. And you're going to get killed. And then he describes how the believers have responded to this. They've been condemned by these people. They've been murdered by these people. And how do the believers respond? This ideal believer, the ideal believer, one who truly understands that they're patiently waiting upon the Lord, they do not resist this evil. Why? What, what, what would motivate a believer to face such persecution where people are condemning them falsely, it seems, murdering them, holding back their wages, and the believers stand by and they do not resist these people who are working such evil in the world? What would motivate anybody to live like this? It's an understanding of who God is and that God is the righteous judge and that he will deal justly with those who have done evil. And that becomes abundantly clear as we work through verses 7 through 12 where he now is very going to clearly come out at us and begin to step on our toes. Because it's not my natural inclination when I face situations much less than what's been described in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, to respond in a patient, non-resistant way. I'm by nature pretty combative. I remember uh, one time when I was older than I should have to be in this situation, but um, probably 13, 14, maybe 15, and uh, one of my friends was at our house and he was playing with one of my sister's water guns and somehow he broke it. I don't know why, but I decided to punch him as res in response. It wasn't even my, um, it wasn't even my water gun. It wasn't an expensive water gun. It was like a little, you know, 50 cent dollar water gun. But my response to him breaking my sister's water gun was I got in a fight with him. Why? Because my natural response to situations is not to patiently bear up under the trial, right? Now, Lord willing, I've, I've grown and I've matured from that, and I wouldn't, as my first response when you break my sister's water gun, be to punch you this time, right? I mean, I've grown for about 15, 20 years now since then, but that's, that's our heart, right? Our heart naturally pursues its own desires, and our natural response is not to be waiting patiently for someone else to come in and do what is right in the situation. 
And yet as James writes to his former church members and he instructs them as to how they're to live in this present world and deal with the struggles and the trials that they face, what he tells them is, <clears throat> uh, sorry, their selfishness is unparalleled. And then uh, the self-sufficient riches appear to escape with their vile plans only uh, for a short period and then um, the destruction is talked about in the slaughter. But what James tells them is to follow the pattern of patience while waiting. Follow the pattern of patience while waiting. And he begins, and he just steps on our toes right away. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain? What he does here is he calls you and I to live by faith. He doesn't use that terminology, but as we go back and we think about James chapter 2 and we think about the fact that he has told us, you know, you're supposed to live lives of faith and that life of faith is supposed to be modeled after who? After Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for what? Righteousness. Look at the life of Rahab. Rahab was securely in the city of Jericho. Troops all around her walls. The Israelite soldiers come in and she's been hearing reports about how powerful and how great, not the Israelite army is, but about how great the Israelites' God is. And when she receives them, what does she do? She demonstrates her faith in God by saying, let me protect you and give you guidance and counsel so that you can escape and get back to your people. And what is she given? She's given her life as a result of her faith. And so James is returning to this theme and he says, wait patiently, believing that God will do what is right. So therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. It's our hope that God will indeed punish sin. You know, farmers all over Iowa planted their crops a number of weeks ago, right? And there were a number of weeks that things were getting very dry around Iowa. If you've been following the weather reports, the last you know week and a half or so has changed that. But for a while there, things were getting pretty dry, right? And the city of Des Moines recently like a week and a half ago, told people to cut down their watering of their grass by 25%. Why? Because there wasn't much water, right? But what do the, what do the farmers do? They plant their field expecting that what's going to happen? There's going to be early and sometimes later rains, and God will take care of it, and ultimately what will happen? Fruit will appear. Not necessarily fruit fruit, because we don't grow that much in Iowa, like grain, soy, corn, will appear. And they will be able to harvest that and take that to its designated places, sell it, and be able to provide for their family for another year, right? And that's the illustration that he gives for you and I. Sometimes it doesn't look like there's going to be enough rain for the farmer, right? I bet there are some farmers that are getting quite anxious. There are probably still some farmers who are quite anxious about the outcome of this year's crops. And, and our God is far more dependable than 
where the rain falls on some and doesn't fall on some. And he's calling upon you and I to look at just even nature itself and see the faithfulness of our God and the way that nature provides for both the just and the unjust and say, if God provides so graciously and abundantly for both the just and the unjust in this physical world, will he not also care for my spiritual and physical needs in his proper time? And the answer is we examine that truth and we look at nature and we see how God has provided is, yes, God will continue to provide for, God will continue to care for my needs as well. And so he calls us to wait in faith. And our hope then is found in the return of the Lord. It's not found in who takes the next presidential election. It's not found in what happens in a year and a half when we have another election for the representatives who go to the House of Representatives. It's not found in you and I having enough children to outpopulate any other people group. None of those are the hope that he promises us to wait for. What he's telling us to do is to wait for the Lord. That's when all the wrongs of this world will be made right. Until then, evil people will continue to prosper. And so our ultimate hope is found in Christ and his return. James is asserting that the trials are going to be hard. They are going to be difficult. And as a result, he tells them, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's interesting. He refers to the coming of the Lord two times. In verse 7, he tells us, therefore be patient until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, at the end, he tells us, you also be patient Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts in what? In a firm confidence in who God's character is and what that says about what will happen in the future. And the ultimate demonstration of God's character isn't going to take place by you getting a different job or by you having different neighbors or by you going to a different school, or by a political event that may happen, the ultimate demonstration of this will be when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And so he says, wait patiently for that. Until that day comes, evil will continue in this world. And so realizing the present stress, he warns them of a common temptation. You know, my temptation, your temptation is, as we, we bear on through trials, is to begin to grumble about those trials. Sometimes those trials are really big things that we grumble about. Sometimes they're really small things like somebody got in our way for a little too long in a traffic stop. What happens? We begin to talk about that. And we're not, you know, full-on grumbling, but we're making it very clear to everybody else in the car, or at least our own minds, this person displeased me greatly, and it'd be okay with me if they didn't, you know, exist anymore. And, and so he, he tells them 
the temptation is as you face the trials that's been described in verses 1 through 6. Immense trials. False condemnation by the government, by religious leader, or by leaders who are rich, who have influence in the geographical locations that they're staying in. Murder, withholding of wages. These are all things that are of serious consequence. And you can imagine, just like in our day and age, when somebody's mistreated, and somebody else says, you know, I'm just going to wait for the proper authority to deal with the situation. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand and seek vengeance for myself. What begins to happen? People come alongside you and like, you know, this person really has wronged you in a grievous way. And so, you know, if you just did this and, you know, they begin to talk. And as they talk, what happens? The temptation is that they would grumble at someone. You see this among your children, right? Your children have a spat with each other, and maybe you don't realize it, and the children are then talking, and as they talk, what happens? They influence each other to do what? To grumble. And so James is coming alongside his believing friends, and he tells them, be careful about this. Out of the situation or the trial that you're facing that's been described already, the temptation for you and I is that we would grumble in the situation. But he says that's not faithfully waiting for God to deal with the situation. That is, in a, a very real sense, take upon the responsibility of solving that situation upon yourself. And he says God is at the door and he's able to judge. And so he warns them about the danger that they would find themselves in this situation and that their temptation would be to seek to grumble about the situation. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. What he's telling them is to examine the lives of the prophets. Last night at our fellowship meal, we read through Daniel chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the story of Daniel chapter 3, let me very quickly refresh your memory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all the other people of, of Babylon are gathered, and King Nebuchadnezzar has structured this majestic golden statue of himself. And he tells everybody, when you hear the sound of, I don't remember all the names of the musical instruments in their correct order, so I'm not going to try. But when you hear those sounds, what are they supposed to do? You know? Obey. obey. They're supposed to obey by bowing down. Yes. Okay? And if they don't do that, what's going to happen? They're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace, right? That's some pretty strong persecution that's being described in Daniel chapter 3. Think back to some of the things that Elijah suffered as he obeyed God and prophesied and told people about God and the fact that he had to live apart from people for so very long as he awaited for God to come and tell him go and talk to the king and then he's surrounded there by all the prophets of Baal and he's the only prophet of God right there and God calls them to have this competition on the mountaintop you know how intimidating that had to have been for Elijah? 
Like if I if I lose this competition, there's 300 of them and one of me. Who's dying here? Like that had to have been intimidating. And what does he do? He patiently waits for the Lord to reveal Himself. And the Lord does reveal Himself in all those situations, doesn't He? And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not burned by the fire. Their clothes are not even harmed. And yet the people who threw them in the fire are immediately killed by the extensive heat that they encounter. Elijah goes and he, he prays and God starts his sacrifice on fire, even though it's been poured on with so much water. And all the people look on, and as they look on, what do they say? The Lord, he is Lord. He's demonstrating to us. He says, look at the prophets. There's so many other stories of prophets who, the situations that they faced in their life were difficult. The trials looked to be overwhelming. Yet what did they do? They faithfully obeyed the Lord. And for many of them, God demonstrated himself faithful to them in a physical way. For some of them, they died. Was God still faithful, though, there? Yes, God was still faithful there. Did they see it work out physically in their lives in this world? No. And yet, that's what he's telling us to do. He says, look at both groups. Both the prophets who were sawn in two and the prophets who walked through fiery furnaces unharmed and be strengthened and encouraged in your resolve to live patiently for the Lord this, through this trial. And so he tells them to examine the lives of the prophets. I think by application, by implication, you and I should also be encouraged by, we should also be willing to study the biographies of other believers who have done similar things. So many other believers have preceded us and have lived faithful lives and their lives have been recorded for us. And we can, we can read those and be encouraged and be challenged by the fact that God is faithful and that he cares for his servants. And because he's cared for them faithfully, he will care for us faithfully. And so we should live faithfully in the trials that we find ourselves in. He doesn't stop there. He also tells them to look at their lives. And their lives are examples of faithful service despite trials. Job also waited patiently until he saw God's compassion and mercy. Very, very quickly, the story of Job. Job is a righteous man. And all of a sudden, wave after wave of messengers come and tell him that his entire fortune has been wiped out and all his children have died. And the rest of, well, not the rest, but most of the rest of the story of Job is continual challenges from his friends and then even from him later on. Asking, is God really in control? Does God really know what he's doing in this situation? And God ultimately comes to Job and tells him what? I am in control. I did orchestrate these events. These events are to demonstrate what? That 
that I am a good God and that you ought to trust me and ought to question. And Job does see the compassion and mercy of God, right? His wealth is once again restored. He once again has new children. And so he also has seen the waiting on the Lord patiently and bearing up under the trials is a worthwhile pursuit. Something that's not only good for ages past, but is good for our present age and will be good for ages that are in the future. This is the model of life that has been given to us both by Job, the prophets, the kings, the apostles, former pastors and missionaries, and has been entrusted to you and I. As we bear up under the trials and walk faithfully, we see the Lord's hand delivers. And so he calls you and I to do the same, to examine these lives and to be encouraged in them. He ends with this final instruction. It almost seems like you know, at first reading, you're kind of like, how does this fit into this? Because he says, but above all. So like, this is, this is the, big, the, the big one, right? This is where, you know, he really wants them to take this piece away. But above all, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. How does that fit into everything that we've talked about so far? It kind of feels a little like James just like grabbed a verse out of the Old Testament and like switched up a couple words and then plopped it down in the New Testament and just kept writing. But that's not what happened. Okay, that's not what happened. I think what he's saying is go back and look at the end of verse 6. What are these people facing? You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. When you're drug into the court of law, and they ask you about your testimony, how do you respond to that? You respond by simply telling the truth. You don't need to invoke all these special oaths and extra words and swear on this or that. He says, simply tell the truth. Why? Because as you come before the judge and this rich person who's an evil man has condemned you of some gross evil, you stand there and you simply say, this is the truth. Not swearing on your mom's grave or anything stupid like that. You just simply say, this is the truth, and I entrust myself to who? To God's care. That is a very practical, very real, very beautiful demonstration of the fact that you are waiting patiently for the coming of the Lord. And so he calls you and I to wait patiently upon the Lord. As we wrap up, I want you to see a couple ideas, I believe, that are from the text. God will judge unrepentance and evil action. And while verses 5, 1 through 6, I do not think are primarily addressed to you and I as believers, I do believe that the principle of judgment for evil actions is very present in the text. God is angry 
with those who practice evil. And God will judge those who practice evil. And so if you're here today and you're a believer and your life is characterized by practicing or participating in some sort of evil, whether it's one that's described in this text or something else completely, it is your responsibility to repent of that. Because God does not take sin in a believer's life or an unbeliever's life lightly. We wait longingly for God's deliverance. It's a very important note, I believe, that he mentions the coming of the Lord not once, but two times. He wants you and I to focus our attention, to focus our endeavors, not on my own ability to bear up under the trials, but instead to find my strength in the trials that God allows to come into my life in God's promises. It's not about you, it's not about me and my ability to bear up under trials, whether those trials be you know, screaming toddlers or persecution from government or from somebody who's evil and trying to rob me of my wealth. Rather, the goal is to point people to the character of God. And we do that not by standing up to the trials and the difficulties through my own abilities, but we do that instead by leaning on, depending upon Christ. And then we remind ourselves of the saints' faithfulness. I think as you and I think about how we can remind ourselves practically of the saints' faithfulness, I think one of the things that we fail to do is we fail to meditate enough on past believers' faithfulness. Whether that be the accounts of David as he ran away from Saul as he pursued him, or whether that be the accounts of the prophets as they pursued faithfulness and obedience to God and are persecuted for that, or whether that be learning of you know more modern-day believers who have lived faithfully. But I think it's important for you and I to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness as it's been demonstrated throughout the ages. And that should encourage and strengthen our resolve to live faithfully today. And so he calls upon you and I to remind ourselves of them. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. A very practical application for you this coming week is to pick up one of the prophets and read through it. Maybe not Isaiah or Jeremiah. Those are longer and a little bit more difficult to follow. But like the book of Daniel, there's, there's some prophecy that gets a little more complicated into the weeds. But there's a lot of stories in there that demonstrate God's past faithfulness and the fact that God's plan will be accomplished. So remind yourself, refresh your memory of God's past faithfulness as it's been demonstrated to believers in time past. But it's not enough to simply remind ourselves, look at God's past faithfulness. Isn't that great? That's so encouraging. It's back there for us to look back on and fondly remember as times of bygone eras and look at God's faithfulness. No. If all we do is look at the book of Daniel or look at the life of David or the life of Abraham or Rahab 
Say, look at how God faithfully cared for those people in the past. Isn't that great? God was such a good God. And it doesn't impact how you and I respond to the trials that God brings into our life today. It's theology at its worst. Head knowledge without any application is void of any use. And so you and I must commit as we focus our attention on God's past faithfulness to wait upon the Lord to deal with the trials that we face today. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction for our lives and how it calls upon us to faithfully wait for you. Pray that as we go through this coming week that you would help us to be mindful of and find ways to remind ourselves of your past faithfulness as it has been demonstrated throughout the ages. And as we see that, that we would not simply be encouraged and led to praise, but that we would see that it has practical implications for how we live our lives this week and this month. In your name we pray. Stand, we sing our final song for the morning service. <clears throat>